I learned uh, bricklayer, so I learned how to build houses and everything, and now I'm 33 years old. Didn't work for uh, 10 years, but it's nice to do it again. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 107 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who is a trained bricklayer. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash fitness. Yes, we are starting with a review today. Exceptional podcast, great information delivered by an entertaining host. Five stars by Root B from the UK. Since discovering Semi-Pro Cycling at the end of 2013, I have started listening every week and look forward to each new episode on Thursday mornings. Damien keeps up with the latest information from the cycling and sports science world and delivers the snippets each week to his listeners. There are also great guests on each show including pro cyclists, top coaches, and researchers from sports science. Each episode has its own webpage with links and references so you can further explore topics. Highly recommended spending 30 minutes of your week listening to these podcasts. A very good show. Thank you very much, Rupert, for taking the time out to do that. I appreciate any busy person that takes time out to write a review. It really, really does mean a lot to me. And a reminder to you that if you do like the show, I would love it if you took some time out to write a review on either Stitcher or iTunes because five stars makes me think damn it feels good to be a gangster thank you very much now the performance probe this week and probe number one is an article from Pez Cycling News called Rebounding from a DNF it is by one of my favorite coaches Kristen Deffenbach PhD she's a boss when it comes to anything touchy-feely woo-woo psychology-based I'm a big, big fan of hers. And this covers a topic that I want to look at in detail in a later episode, failure. Or in the case of cycling, the ultimate shame, which is DNF. And as she describes, mechanical DNFs are totally out of our control. So they're easier to get over. It's the injury or the fatigued or the simply just didn't have it DNF that plays on every single rider's mind. And turning it all around is all about perspective. So here are her top tips for making the right call or making the call right when it comes to making the call to ride another day. Too many making calls there. But anyway, the first one, when adrenaline surges, making a clear decision can feel impossible. But she does believe with practice, centered breathing can help you quickly create a sense of physical and mental calm needed to make a better decision. And so with time, just a few deep inhales will help ground you, giving you the ability to to clear your mind and calm down quickly so that you can proceed with confidence that you are in control of your options. The second one here, practice assessing and gauging discomfort, pain, stiffness and soreness associated with routine training and small mishaps. So if you have an internal awareness of pain and impact on movement and recovery, then you can make better decisions and it'll give you confidence to trust your own evaluation judgment when it's called upon. And confidence in your own judgment will greatly reduce the destructive post-decision second-guessing about whether or not you were really hurt. Another one here, 
cultivate key advisors. So having people around you that you can trust, that you know you and your goals and your abilities become very invaluable when you need guidance. So if you're at that point where you're like, should I race or should I not? You need someone that knows your long-term goals, is looking out for your long-term well-being and can make a decision alongside you based on all of the facts and so it makes it easier to have someone bounce that decision off and the final one that she's got is keep it in perspective and I'm glad she says this this isn't the it's only a bike race speech it's racing and performance are important to you but consider this one event in relation to the entire span of all the riding you will do over your entire racing career keeping it in perspective is important for the best chances of healthy career longevity the second performance probe I've got here is a page from Chris Froome's biography, Vava Vroom, The Remarkable Rise of Chris Froome. I'm going to read some parts out of it here where he goes into detail about how he basically deceives all of the Sky Performance staff when it comes to training. Richie and I both struggle when we are told to take it easy. We want to be out there training. Work gives us the reassurance we need. We don't want Contador thinking of us sipping cappuccinos and talking bull. We are no pain, no gain fundamentalists. A lot of the time, Team Sky want us to be recovering. If we've done a big block training in Tenerife, they might say, okay guys, take four days easy back at home now before you go to the next race. Richie and I become edgy at the prospect. Richie especially. You have to take his bike away if you don't wanting to be doing five-hour rides god four days we're going to get fat in four days we're going to put on a kilo it's better if we train we can't train though otherwise they'll see that we have been training so we have found a way to get past our power meters if we're supposed to do an hour we'll probably do an hour and a half on the power meter then disable it so it switches off and only shows that we've done an hour and a half meanwhile the two of us will go on and do more training we might carry on for another four hours It's a really interesting insight into not only Froome, but Richie Port as well. When you consider they have all of this talent that's guiding them and all of this technology that's part of it, yet they still have the ability to turn off a power meter to give false training stress readings when it comes to their overall stress because they don't believe that they can do it any other way but their way. And... I don't know, this to me as a coach sounds like an absolute nightmare, but as far as the riding goes, it would be really hard not to get into an overtrained state with this and not be able to accurately predict the numbers. So I don't know if anyone from Sky has actually read this because it exposes their entire system. And in some senses, I would have to think this would have to be reined in or it's just total bullshit and not to take it seriously at all. I'm probably not going to take it seriously at all, but it does get me thinking about how easily it is to manipulate the data, even at the top level, when you're talking small percentages and recovery makes all the difference when it comes to your performance. Froome thinks otherwise and so acts otherwise and Obviously, something's working, but is it a long-term strategy that's going to work for him? I would love to know the inside story on this topic. Alrighty then, let's get down to the nuts and bolts and this week, fitness versus endurance. So when it comes to building your chronic training load, your long-term stress, the composition of that load is 
very important. And because we're endurance athletes, finding the right balance between endurance and other types of fitness are central to our performance. Today's episode is going to use some basic physiology to explain the difference between fitness and endurance, and also why one should always precede the other. Also, why are they not one and the same thing, and how to measure them. It's based off a talk by PB Science called Aerobic Decoupling or Cardiac Drift, the difference between fitness and endurance. And the first question asked was, what does fitness mean to you? So if you have a think about this question, what does fitness mean to you? Everyone's answer is going to be different. As an example, for me, it's feeling a certain way doing a certain ride well, being able to handle training stress well amongst my other responsibilities in life. And a definition that was mentioned in the talk, which I really like, is fitness is delivering the pain myself rather than the session doing it for you. I think every cyclist can associate with those words. When you are fit, you feel like you're on top of everything and you can dish it out when you want. So let's move into some definitions now. Firstly, the definition of aerobic fitness. And it's defined as a high rate of energy transfer using the aerobic metabolism. And it's classically measured by VO2 max. The classical view on endurance is being able to sustain a percentage of your VO2 max. In terms of lab measurements, it's about sustaining a high lactic threshold. And it really boils down to the ability to exercise at a high percentage of VO2 max without accumulating blood lactate. When we do look at this view of blood lactate, which has been around a long time, so 4 millimoles is the gauge of lactate threshold, functional threshold power, the 60-minute critical power. That's kind of the gauge that we're looking at because anything above that releases more lactate into the system and that's when you start fatiguing. Well, this has been the traditional view of lactate. There is limits to this view though and the lactate threshold protocol has been changing over time because lactate threshold as it has traditionally been seen as a measure of endurance and it's great to get blood lactate reading at a steady state but how does this transfer over because it's traditionally measured in short stage durations. So if you're doing a step test or a map test and you're recording lactate every three or four minutes can this explain performance over a long duration? I'm not totally convinced on this. And the role that lactate plays in the body is now in question. As it was thought to be an indicator of fatigue, it's now thought of more as running parallel to fatigue, but not necessarily causing it. Blood lactate is not equal to the metabolic environment in the body. There's a lot of other things going on, not just lactate that's being produced in the blood. So if we want to get back to performance and how we explain performance via science, it has been shown that VO2 max is a good measure of performance as long as there is a mixed group of athletes in any study that's been done. And say in broad terms, four and a half liters per minute is better in broad terms than three liters per minute. So that pretty much makes sense to me that the greater liters per minute that you have, the better you're going to perform. If then you put lactate as a measure on top of this, so you have your lactate threshold 
It also improves the prediction of performance in similar fitness groups. So if you have two athletes with the same VO2 max, then one has a higher lactate threshold, they will likely win in a performance competition. Maybe not always the case in cycling, but in pure performance terms, it's more likely if someone has a higher lactate threshold. So what controls VO2 max then, and what are we training for in sessions that are focused on training VO2 max? It's the cardiovascular system, which is taking oxygen in and delivering it to the muscles. So things that are important here in this central system are stroke volume, heart rate, blood flow, and oxygen carriage. This is one central system, and this is the aerobic system. But what controls lactate threshold is a peripheral system, which is taking oxygen from the blood and using it in the muscle. So muscle fiber type and mitochondria is important, which the main job of mitochondria, if you don't know, is energy conversion. So mitochondria oxidize glucose to produce energy that the cell can use. And then this process is called cellular respiration, which makes ATP, which is a molecule that the cell can use as a source of energy. Also, aerobic enzymes and fuel utilization controls your lactate threshold. So thinking about this process simply, we breathe in air, then this moves into our lungs where it's transferred to the blood, and then it moves to the heart to be pumped out to the muscle. And finally, inside the muscle, the mitochondria takes the oxygen and uses it to produce energy. So again, Thinking about this as two systems, the VO2 max, which measures your central ability, and then your lactate system, which measures your peripheral ability. I like to think of these as the floor and the ceiling. So the floor is the lactate threshold or functional threshold power, and the ceiling is the VO2 max. And this way of thinking it becomes important when you're looking at what to train and when. So the physiological factors explaining endurance performance as a whole the talk goes into the Ed Coyle model, and I have broken this model down before. Ed Coyle is a very famous physiologist. Probably the most famous study he did was on a cyclist called <clears throat> Lance Armstrong, but he has done a lot of work in trying to model performance for cyclists as well as other endurance sports. So he believes that performance is velocity at power, so we measure it in power in cycling and he's broken it down into say vo2 max and the ability to sustain a high percentage of it also anaerobic potential going above a sustainable power your ftp for example by using energy that doesn't come from oxygen use this is where you don't have much of this energy in there because it's not being regenerated through oxygen that's been breathed in and because of this there is a limited supply of it and a quick reminder about energy expenditure that at lactate threshold the aerobic process is oxygen and the anaerobic process is when we are producing lactic acid. And these processes alone don't explain the difference between performance though. They are not so closely linked to performance as we once thought and there is a missing component. So the missing component of the performance model is mechanical efficiency. It's also known as economy, but it's the amount of oxygen you require to develop one watt of work. So Two riders may produce the same amount of power, but one might use less oxygen to produce those watts. So this is why it is so important to train with cadence to try and increase your efficiency. This is done at the same time that you're doing endurance in your base training. 
Mechanical efficiency is all about holding off fatigue for as long as possible. Because if we look at what endurance is, it's basically building fatigue tolerance. And as an example of this, I always prescribe a minimum of two hours of endurance work because time is the biggest factor in producing fatigue at that level. And this is for three reasons. Because your body produces heat, there is fuel utilization and supply, and muscle fiber recruitment reduces as the energy is used up in the muscles. So all of these change over time and don't stay constant. So this is part of what you're training when you're training endurance. So time becomes the challenge to any steady state output. And riding at FTP is easy for anybody for a set amount of time, depending on how well trained you are, but it gets increasingly harder over time. If we extend that time at FTP, we lower muscle energy stores, we produce heat, and we decrease water stores. So this is exactly what we're trying to train when we're looking at endurance. One question that comes up during a season is, when do I transfer from base to build and how do I know when to do it? Because it's not just about putting training down, doing it, and then getting to a certain point. As we all know, things get in the way of doing the ideal plan that was probably set down at the start of the season, and you need to readjust and adapt for any changes that are happening and make sure that you're getting that base in. But what base is sufficient enough? When thinking about what to work on next, there's a heuristic that I use, and I call it the 15% rule, and that says that your FTP, or lactate threshold when trained, is around 15% lower than your VO2 max power. So this gives you a quick indicator of what to work on next. There's definitely more technical ways to do this, and I'm working on something right now that's part of a much bigger benchmarking system, but I'm holding on to that info for the moment because I want to perfect that. It may show up in a podcast in the future, the idea gives you a better gauge over time and you know where you're at. There is one way that I have measured it before and I do still use now, I'm just incorporating it into a different style of system, is aerobic decoupling. And it works well with time and intensity because it is intrinsically linked to time. As a reminder, aerobic decoupling over time is when at a consistent power, heart rate will increase or at a consistent heart rate, power will decrease. So calculating the extent of decoupling, you're looking at the percentage change between the ratio of power to heart rate in the first half of the workout and the percentage change in the ratio of power to heart rate in the second half of the workout and simply comparing them to get that change. So what I work off is 5%. I will look at a steady zone 2 ride and I look at the point that the aerobic decoupling percentage increases above 5%, then I know the endurance of the rider only goes to that certain point, whether that's 2 hours, 3 hours, or 4 hours, whatever it may be. Over time, I'm looking for the 5% or lower to go longer and longer, so I know a rider's endurance is getting greater and greater, but I'm also looking for a reduction from 5% and down. You can use it in more of a broader sense when it comes to training because there are degrees of decoupling and it does tell you where you are compared to where you need to be. So it really is an effective means of judging the training load and it gives you an insight into your endurance base. One caveat here is you still have to remember that it's based on heart rate and heart rate can fluctuate depending on a number of different things. It's an input metric, so remember that any heat will change it 
dehydration may change your heart rate. So you have to factor these things in. And if you're trying to compare rides, make sure that they're all similar in temperature, in warm-up, in length, in intensity, so you can have a solid comparison from ride to ride. But if we're talking about looking at the degrees of decoupling, we can sort of get a sense of how hard training is and how someone is adapting to it. And moderate decoupling is where you want to sit someone if you're trying to stress their system. So you know that they are sufficiently stressed, they are less aerobically fit, and their fibers are receiving some stimulus. Excessive decoupling means that the training load is too high. So you're actually hurting them and you're not getting adaptions, you're just fatiguing somebody. So if you look at the magnitude that was recommended, high 10 to 15%, medium 5 to 10% and low less than 5%. So I look for that below 5% to know that somebody has actually reached a point where their endurance is up to a certain point. But if you're looking at this metric during training over time for things outside of just endurance, then you could look at that 5 to 10%. I tend not to do it because it relies on heart rate too much, but it is an interesting approach to see whether you need to increase intensity or you start need to add length to sessions to get a greater adaption, whether it is endurance or it is fitness. This has hopefully shown you how fitness is not equal to endurance. Fitness allows you to work at higher power outputs, while endurance allows you to sustain higher power outputs. So this explains why in training you need layering and why periodization is is a great way of moving from stage to stage as your fitness increases at different levels. You lift your power and then you build time at that power and then you go and then you lift your power again and then build time at that power again until you can't do it anymore. So the tech hacks and products section this week and there's been some pretty big power meter news this week and any power meter news is big news in the semi-pro world as far as I'm concerned. So by now you would have heard of the Watt team and their 499 power meter the power beat which by the way may not be the final price it could be less but the quick facts about this power meter self-installed which means you glue it on yourself it covers left and right for that price it works with any crank arm carbon or aluminium and it's bluetooth and ant plus They're looking at a US Summer 2015 release. I did quote Spring in a tweet that I sent out, but it looks like Summer is where they're going, but they're hoping to get it out before then. It looks like an interesting product. Again, it comes down to, for me, the installation and how much accuracy they will be able to get across every cyclist doing their own mechanical work and we will see if the percentages are different depending on that because like I said in last week's episode which was the predictions show and I tell you what I didn't actually see that this power meter was coming out and it wasn't until that show was published that I saw it and I was pretty amazed that they were going in the direction I thought they would which is cheaper both sides and you could put on any bike you want I swear that I did not know it was coming but anyway It is a good development, but we have to see, like on that other side of the predictions, the accuracy. And accuracy is becoming more and more important because it is possible to have a more accurate power meter that doesn't have drift or it is consistent for every single person that uses it. And so this becomes more and more of an issue as we see the technology get better and better. While we are talking about new power meters, I did come across a 
power meter that has not been released, much like this one, but they haven't even had a press release to let us know exactly what it is all about. But this is a new power meter from the company called C-Sense. And C-Sense came out with a Kickstarter campaign last year that had a rear tail light that would speed up its flashing if a car was coming close to you. So it would hopefully get the car's attention and they would not run over you or whatever. So they're trying to go beyond these smart lights and go into real-time pedal power analysis. So it's not just the power that they're trying to get. They're trying to get a power analysis from this as as well that will be displayed in real-time on a smartphone, which is pretty exciting stuff. So the goal here is riders will know exactly which muscle groups are under or overusing while they're out on a ride and also they're going to have some telemetry where it'll go straight to a coach so a coach can see it while you're out on a ride so you will be able to remote link back to a coach that will be able to analyze this while it's all happening so i like that idea i think there is a lot of potential with seeing this information live especially because the majority of my coaching is done online and remotely away from the athlete so we're yet to see exactly how this technology is going to be used but i imagine they're going to go for the cheap price point as well they're going for slightly different features which for me as a coach look more interesting but we don't know all of the power beats secrets just yet interbike i hope will expose a lot of this i don't know if csense is going to be there but i can bet that what team is going to be there and we will be able to get a clearer picture of how good these cheaper power meters are going to be for the serious cyclist and now that quote from the top of the show it's swiss mtb ralph nafe The BMC rider has been consistently performing at the top level since 2003. I saw him win the 2008 World Cup in Canberra, and this is a quick insight into his life, a day in the life of Ralph Nafe. I love this type of look at pro riders. You really get a chance to see how they train and what they optimize for outside of training, which happened to be renovating and coffee. But There's also a big element here of his family. He's got three kids and he's married. And he says that he stays at home as much as possible, sacrificing better training venues in the mountains because he wants to spend time with his family. And this is a really important point. What on the surface looks like a sacrifice that you make in your training, but really gives you focus and peace of mind in your life. I think it's a better way to frame your training regarding everyone involved in your success rather than seeing everything as an obstacle to performing at your best. So for example, an active recovery day may be better with family than riding it puts money in the relationship bank and it gives you the freedom to train harder on the days that count anyway the reason that there's a mountain biker on the show is because the world champs are starting very soon in Lillehammer Norway I'm keen to see whether Nino Schurter can defend his title in the XCO and another reason that I love cycling is the world champs one day one race anything can happen so all i can say is bring it on and that's it you have been listening to the semi-pro performance podcast remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash fitness to find any links used in this week's episode from there you can click any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages until next week get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into (laughs) 